This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, I'm Dan Coatesworth. Welcome to the latest edition of the Asia Bell Money and Markets podcast. This week's show is packed with some interesting stuff on pensions, children's attitudes to money and investing in Asia. Joining me is Laura Suter. Hi there, Laura. Hi there. I've been looking at some quite remarkable figures on the amount of money sitting in savings accounts earning no interest. And I've been looking at a big error that's been made on state pension payments. Tom Selby is also on the show this week. He's here to talk about the Chancellor's plan to boost pensions by £1,000 a year and why it's not that straightforward. Hi there, Tom. Hi, Dan. And if you've ever wondered what children think about money, then don't miss our chat with two 15-year-olds on this week's podcast where they talk budgeting, lending money to friends and earning money as a teenager. I'll also be talking to Vietnam Enterprise Investments Dominic Scriven about why he believes Vietnam is growing in popularity with investors. But let's start with a chat about markets this week. So Dan, has it been a good week or a bad week for markets? Um, up and down, I guess that's the... <laughs> politician's answer. <laughs> the then. politician's answer. Yeah, I mean, as we're recording this, uh, we've just had some figures out on US inflation um, and they've come in a bit lower than expected. So that's 12 consecutive months of declining figures. So naturally stocks rallied off the back of that. But if we go back a few days, there's still a bit of nervousness about um, you know the fact that central banks could be putting up rates for a bit longer. Um, UK wage growth figures are running a bit faster than expected. We've had people like the recruitment company Page Group saying you know, things are quite harder. You know, perhaps companies aren't sort of feeling as confident in hiring or certainly candidates aren't feeling very confident about moving jobs. And one of their weakest areas in the, in the sort of geographic territory was the UK. So the idea that the UK is not in recession at the moment uh, might not be, uh, you know, a, a good way to sort of test the mood of consumers and markets um, and businesses. So, um, but generally, you know, US markets have, you know, they're, they're all right. They've been doing quite well this year, um, led by all the sort of the big tech firms. But in the next couple of weeks, we've got the start of the next earnings season. So I think what, what we'll sort of look for there is the quarterly figures might look okay, but it's the outlook statement which will matter. And if there's any sign of sort of you know, management team saying a bit more cautious about things, that could bring the sort of stock market to a, a sort of slight halt. And we could see a bit of a wobble you know, as we move into sort of the main part of our summer. Um, and the Bank of England has been doing its annual stress tests of banks, hasn't it? Which feels quite pertinent at the moment with so much focus on mortgage rates, savings rates. Yeah, so the Bank of England does this quite regularly. It sort of, looks, it sort of, un, it sort of gives a scenario where, um, let's say, you know, the, the economy is much worse than it is at the moment. You know, could the UK banks cope with this? So um, things that they look for are you know, a 5% start to trough fall in, in UK GDP, um, a 31% drop in, in UK house prices, 45% drop in UK commercial property values, um, and things like you know, a, a sort of a spike in unemployment, more inflation, and interest rates about 6%. So they, they sort of model this scenario, and can the banks still lend comfortably in these sort of conditions and all the UK banks have passed the test I think you know this is this is great but I don't think anyone's sort of surprised at that compared to US and, and perhaps continental European banks UK banks have sort of been well capitalized in recent years but I guess of course this is this again this is backwards looking you know looking at the state of them but 
what happens if interest rates keep going up? We could get a scenario where the economy starts to wobble. Um, there's just been some figures out from the Bank of England saying mortgage payments could rise by at least £500 a month for nearly 1 million households by the end of 2026. So um, now these banks clearly are facing the prospect of lots of people not going to be able to to either make their loan repayments on time or, or for some not at all. Um, so whilst the, the stock market reaction to the bank stress test was, was positive or the banking shares went up, you have to think, well, if times gets harder, what, what happens to these companies? Are they going to face more bad debts? Um, what happens to dividends? Of course, most people own banking shares for the income. So if they start to cut back on dividends, that's not going to be very good for sort of the sector. So, Tom, am I right in saying that there's a read across from these bank stress tests to pensions? And dare I say it, your favourite topic of last year, LDI. Um, yes, so there was a mention of LDI funds within the, the bank stress test. So, as Dan said, generally, um, the, the bank's confident that the UK economy is resilient to rising interest rates, but we still have these pesky LDI funds sitting in the background, which caused a significant headache to the Bank of England in the wake of the mini-budget last year. So as a reminder, LDI, liability-driven investments, are used by defined benefit pension schemes effectively to smooth out their exposure to interest rate risks. So when bond yield, so that's the interest rate on government bonds, go up, then the value of defined benefit liabilities, so that's the estimate that these schemes make of how much money they're going to need to pay to all of their members, goes down. So because LDI acts as a hedge, um, rising yields forces the pension scheme to pay money to the investment bank running that hedge. So what we saw at the back end of last year, in August, in, in autumn of last year, was that because there was this rapid shock and this big rise in yields, there was huge amounts of cash that needed to be paid to these hedges and the, the pension schemes didn't have the cash, so they were going to have to sell their assets. And one of the main assets the DB schemes have are government guilt. So what you had was a downward spiral in bond prices. You had these big schemes which are worth trillions of pounds, so hugely influential, having to sell off their bonds at the same time and you were potentially going to have this death spiral. So nothing new in particular on LDI within this report, but the, you, you can see the Bank of England referencing it. I think because it's kind of, it's almost like a ghost at the feast. They know that it's there. They're slightly concerned that this risk remains in the system. They've tried to stabilise it, but there's still huge amounts invested in LDI. And, and frankly, I think they want to make sure they keep an eye on it so we don't have a repeat of what we saw last year. So, Tom, I know there's, you know there's been plenty going on this week with pensions. And, yeah. and I guess the main story has been Jeremy Hunt saying that we'll have an extra thousand pounds in our pensions it's definitely not that straightforward <laughs> yeah very generous yeah. of the chancellor to to give us all a thousand quid extra unfortunately it's not quite that easy so the 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 chancellor is desperate to drive growth in the uk and lots of people of course are but the the government and the treasury doesn't want to borrow in order to invest in the uk economy so the chancellor's clearly been looking around for sources of potential investment in the uk and lo and behold there's about 2.5 trillion quid sat in different kinds of pensions and they've decided that that's the money they want to corral towards the UK economy. And so we've had a huge barrage of pensions announcements from the government covering all sorts of types of pensions, but with a thread running through all of them. And that thread is that the government wants more money going into 
higher risk investments and ideally UK-based higher risk investments. So it wants people's pensions money to drive growth in the UK economy. So various reforms from combining subscale defined benefit schemes and local government schemes to proposals for value for money, which should look beyond pension charging, trying to get schemes to look at things like private equity investments in order to potentially boost their, their long-term returns and also plans to combine smaller pensions within what they call consolidator schemes. So you'd have bigger schemes, which again, the government thinks would be more able to take more investment risk, including potentially investing in these private equity type vehicles. Now, as you say, the Chancellor said on Twitter that there's these reforms, and, and there's also reforms that would see defined contribution schemes allocate more assets to private equity type vehicles between now and 2030, so going from about half a percent of their allocation to about 5%. Now, the Chancellor quite boldly claimed that those reforms would result, as you said, in people getting 12% bigger pensions or £1,000 a year in retirement. Now, frankly, nobody can make that kind of claim. So we're talking about quite a small shift in asset allocation towards private equity. We also have got absolutely no idea what kind of private equity vehicles are going to be allocated to. And we're talking about estimating investment returns over a, a 30, 40, 50 year period. So the idea that a chancellor is able to say, this is exactly how much you're going to get, and actually, you're going to get more money in your pension at retirement is nonsense. And so I think for individual investors, the thing that you've got to remember is this, these, these are going to be your default investment funds through automatic enrolment. So if you do nothing, then you're potentially going to be having more of your money shifted towards riskier private equity style vehicles. So still only potentially 5% of your funds, so not all of it, but more of it. And as, as everyone who listens to this podcast knows, the more investment risk you take over the long term, you're potentially going to get better returns, but that's not guaranteed. And over the short term, you're going to probably see a bit more volatility. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's high-risk stuff. I mean, private equity is just not in fashion at the moment at all. Yeah, um, People worried about um, it's not very transparent. You know, valuations are falling in sort of private assets. Um, it just seems a very strange way of going around, you know, trying yeah. to encourage more people to... To you know, put money aside for the pension. Think about the future, but you know, you take on all the risks. It's 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 high risk, but it's also high charge. Of course, private equity mm. as well. And it, and there was a, an analysis put alongside some of these announcements by the government, which looked at you know, again, you're looking at over 30, 40, 50 years. But when you take when they took into account the charges associated with private equity, actually, they were estimating that the size of pension pot that you get at the end wouldn't be any bigger with this shift to investment as it would have been if things stayed the same so in their median scenarios. So the, the, the clear driver here for the government is to try and use essentially other people's retirement money to fund their goals. And it's not necessarily anything to do with making sure that people get a better retirement outcome. So certainly quite, quite worrying. And I think anyone who's invested in a default fund now should be reviewing that in light of what the government's doing and making sure they're comfortable with their asset allocation. So Tom will be back on next week's podcast to talk about some of the other things that we've seen uh, over the last few days in the pension space. So if you've got any questions regarding Jeremy Hunt's master plan to to get pensions to invest more in private equity or, or anything pensions related, drop us a line. Our email address is podcast at ajbell.com. 
www.tomcarroll.co.uk. Uh, we'll see if Tom can answer some of these questions on next week's show. But before we move on, Laura's just got one more thing to talk about in the world of pensions. Yeah, I'm just moonlighting into Tom's spot here, but <laughs> <laughs> we thought we'd give him a breather. Um, this is the news that the government has announced that some women have missed out on around a billion pounds of state pension payments because they didn't fill in their national insurance number when they applied for child benefit. So this is the situation where people who take time out of the workplace to look after children have been given pension credits for nearly 50 years. And up until 2010, this was called Home Responsibilities Protection. But what has transpired now is that about 187,000 people who would now be in their 60s and 70s, very much predominantly women, have missed out to the tune of an average of about £5,000 per person because these credits haven't been correctly applied. Um, HMRC is now trying to track down these people, but thousands are thought to have died because of the age of the people involved now. Um, lots of those people have died before they got the entitlement that they're due. Um, some cases, their dependents might be eligible to get the cash, but that's some a process that's kind of got to be worked out. At the moment, if you think you might fall into this category, there's nothing that you need to do you just need to keep an eye out for a letter from the DWP open it and act on it when you get it but it's the latest in a line of these state pension issues that we've seen coming out from the government in recent years thanks Laura so I've actually just come out of a meeting I was talking to a colleague um, they were saying that their, their neighbors inherited some money um, and obviously there's, there's a chance at the moment for you to be able to get pretty decent returns on cash I mean Certainly, there's accounts with more than 6% interest rate. They didn't want to do that because they'd never heard of the majority of the, the sort of the banking providers. Um, and so, you know, the risk is that they'll just leave this money that they've inherited in a low paying account. But um, actually, there's people who aren't even earning a bean on their sort of um, savings at the moment. Isn't that right, Laura? Yeah, exactly. So there's some figures that we've got from Bank of England data which show that £250 billion is sitting in cash accounts paying absolutely no interest. And so we know, obviously, the interest rates have risen. They were at historic low levels. Um, in the past year and a half, they've risen to um, 5%. But people are still leaving their money sitting in these accounts earning nothing. In lots of cases, this will be money sitting in current accounts where people are just letting their savings build up. Or it will be people with money sitting in these old accounts that haven't raised interest rates um, since the Bank of England has. Um, it actually peaked. There was a peak of £273 billion sitting in accounts paying zero interest in September last year. And so it's fallen by that 20-odd billion since then. As people are seeing higher interest rates are motivating them more to move their money. I think there's a very justifiable thing of when interest rates were very low, the difference between you earning 0% on your savings and maybe 0.1% or even half a percent. It's not dramatic enough in terms of the return you're going to get on your money unless you've got huge sums of money out there um, to make it feel like it's worth the hassle factor of moving accounts. Now we've seen this big jump up to um, rates being at 5%. That's definitely worthwhile for people in terms of the return they're going to get. So it is heading in the right direction, but just really, really slowly. I mean, it's a shocking amount of money that's still sitting in those accounts. And if we compare it to 2008, which is the last time that interest rates were sit, sat at this level from the Bank of England, at that point, there was less than 50 billion sitting in these accounts paying zero interest. So we 
can see that this period of historic really low rates has led to more people being quite apathetic about their savings and the accounts they're in. Um, and essentially, lots of savings haven't woken up to the fact yet that they need to shift that money. But you're right in terms of that person that you, talk, you were talking to about the kind of slightly weird or obscure names that are at the top of the Best Buy tables. It's not the high street banks. It's not the likes of kind of Barclays, HSBC. It's, I mean, if I look at the top Best Buy tables at the moment, the top pair at the moment is Principality Building Society, followed by Shawbrook Bank or Chorley Building Society. So these are regional organisations or challenger startup banks that lots of people won't have heard of. And lots of people, I think, are quite wary about allocating their money to an organisation they've not heard of. We do a lot of stuff raising awareness of scams, and I think people are worried that they don't know the organisation that it might be a scam. And in that example, they feel like they're better off leaving their money in an account earning very little interest rather than losing it all to a scammer, potentially. Now, we've got a couple of school children in the office this week on work experience, and they're very keen to come on the podcast. Yasmina and Ellie are both 15, and like many people their age, the two of them face the challenge of learning how to look after their cash and not fritter it away, which was definitely not a skill I had inherited at the age of 15. But let's bring them on now. Yasmina and Ellie, I mean, do either of you talk about money at home, or is it the subject that you just want to avoid? It's something for, for boring old people to deal with. With me at home, it's not really about individual like pricing of things for example when you buy something but with my mum mainly it's about for example the cost of living in the UK or inflation so it's not really like personal things about money it's kind of like yeah it's good I mean, it's really important to be up on what, what's happening in the world and in fact you know if you're talking about inflation at home it's good you, you perhaps understand that you know things cost a bit more than they did last year and sort of obviously the year before but how I mean, how does it work for you? Do you do you get an allowance? Do you get get money, or does it, you know, in terms of your parents just give you money whenever you perhaps need it rather than want to? Um, I get money at birthdays and cards, let's say, or when I go out, my parents say, "Oh, would you like any money?" And then I kind of make my own judgment whether I need it or not, because it's kind of like with everything, I feel bad whenever someone offers me something. Um, so yeah, I only take money if I actually need it. How about you, Yasmina? Um, I usually ask my parents if I'm allowed to purchase something. I don't necessarily like just ask for money. Do any of your friends ever sort of say to you, or, oh, I really want to get this, or I haven't got any money, Can, could you lend me something? Um, I think or mainly for school lunches, or let's say we're going out, if they don't have any money to get something, I'll offer it to them. But I would only let someone borrow off of me if they're my close friend. And if it's cheap, let's say it's like over £20. And I don't know when I'd be getting the money back. I wouldn't do that. Especially if it's just a product that they want and they don't necessarily need. Especially if their parents could give it to them as well. I guess, do you, do you, do you sort of trust your friends that they would give you this money back? Um, and also, I mean, how does that make you feel, really? You know, the fact that if someone owes you money, does it sort of, sort of make you feel a bit stressed that you might not? Um, I think I would only lend one someone if they're like, oh, if they have a job or, oh, I've get my pocket money next week, then I can give it to you. But if they just ask me randomly for money and then they say, I don't know when I'll give it back to you, I would get quite stressed. But in that case, I would probably apologise and say, 
no, sorry, I can't give it to you in the first place. Yes, Meenid, what about you? Do, you? do you have friends that sort of think, oh, you know, you might have, say, five pounds. Can I, oh, go on, lend me a bit of that. I want to do, I want to use it. As, as Eddie said, I would, I would lend money if I really trust them. I wouldn't give it to them. Or say if, if I lent, lent them money before, I would obviously do it again because I knew I would get it back. Because as you said, it's like quite stressful if I don't get it back. I guess it when you when you're a bit older, the idea of borrowing money um, will, will probably come into your life. Like most people, um, you know, if you don't, ha- if you perhaps you you want to have things or you need things that your salary doesn't cover, um, the idea of being able to understand borrowing and and the responsibilities of giving back. I was just wondering whether that's ever discussed at school or or anything to do with how to sort of manage your money at all? Not really. Well, I take business and then we're talking about, um, let's say, mortgages, but we wouldn't really go into detail about what it is. We'd just be speaking about um, how it takes many years to pay it back. But I think it should be really important that we should learn about this kind of thing because at uni... Um, As you get into the years, you start renting houses with your friends or you have to pay back student loan and you're very independent. But right now, all of our parents just sort that out for us. What about you, Yasmina? Do you ever wish that you you do more sort of personal finance things at school or do you think, actually, I'm I'm just too young? I'll I'll learn about that when I'm an adult. Um, I think learning about money at school, it will, like, prepare students to spend money more like um yeah responsibly and like understand that borrowing money has risks what about um the idea if you've if you've got money coming in you know that say your your parents have promised to pay something but you know you want to buy something do you, do you ever sort of think about well you know i need to keep track of what i'm spending perhaps i'd write something down about the money i've got coming in and the money going out do you ever look at anything like um yeah, I, I presume you must be too young to, to use things like budgeting apps. So. Um, let's say I'm planning to go out with my friends and have a meal on the weekend. Like a few days before, I might just get a scrap piece of paper and say how much money I think I'm going to spend, how much I have, and if my parents will give me anything, for example, they might pay for the meal. But if I choose to, let's say, buy a top or something... I can't really say that before because I don't know if I'm actually going to get it. So I kind of just make a quick estimation. Um, but let's say I do have quite a lot of money. I won't be apprehensive or scared to spend it because we don't really go out that much. So it's not like a problem that I always have to have something coming in every week. Hmm. Do you have a? Do you have your own bank account? or? Do you... Yeah, I do. I got it in year eight, but... I think I've started using it more now, for example, like going into London, buying lunch. And I also think online shopping has increased my spending as well because it's so easy to just have an account. And when you buy something online, you can just use Apple Pay and Face ID to get it now. Mm, and what about you, Yasmina? Do you, do you have your own bank account or are you still your parents sort of cover all that stuff? Um, I do have a bank account, which my friends regularly check. Obviously, you know, you're both 15 now, so perhaps a bit too young to be um, getting sort of part-time jobs or a weekend job. But, you know, it, it won't be long, though, will it? Next year, perhaps you might want to think about getting a, a summer job. 
working in a shop perhaps or or something like that do you, do you think you'd be up for that do you know do you I guess in one way is you 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 make friends and sociable but also it would give you money coming in and perhaps put you you know, give you experience for when before you become an adult I think if I had a summer job I'd probably save it up for going on holiday or for uni because especially if you get a student loan maybe at uni you'd get a job to pay that off but you'd also like some extra spending money for going out or going back home for family and stuff so well thank you very much Ellie and Yasmina this has been absolutely brilliant having you on the podcast I hope you've enjoyed it thank you we do so it's obviously very important to talk about money at home. Uh, unfortunately, my daughter at two is still too young to learn about my pearls of wisdom on personal finance, but we'll get there. Um, but Dan, you've got older kids. Do you talk to them around the dinner table about money? We do, actually. And it's not because, obviously, I, I work in a job that's all about discussing money, but um, they certainly like to spend money, I guess, like most uh, <laughs> most children these days. So, But what... I guess the key conversations that we have is that when when they've run out of money, how do they get more money? Um, and you know, recently, we've had my youngest daughter's regretting buying stuff. She gets all excited about, oh, how can I do some jobs around the house to get some money? And when she buys it, she, literally about half an hour later, she's like, oh, I just regret it. I didn't really want it. I think it's the uh, it's the buzz of like you know you, you're going to go to the shops and do something, buy something. Um, so I think and she's you know I think actually she's learning some important lessons there. Uh, hopefully, you know, when she's an adult, she won't be sort of rushing out to, to you know, waste all that money. But I, I, I think it's, you know, I think it's really important that you, you do talk about money. Um, and I kind of wish that maybe they should, they should be doing that at school a bit more. I mean, I, you know, Laura, what do you, do you, you know, in, in your role talking about personal finance, what, what you've, what have you seen in terms of sort of the ideas of personal finance being part of the curriculum or, or if it's if it's not there you know when are we going to get any idea that how how schools can improve education just about managing money in general for, for children yeah so in england it's actually part of the national curriculum but only at secondary age and it's kind of rolled in as part of citizenship and maths and i think the kind of delivery of it and the kind of topics that are covered are quite patchy and i think actually also really depends on the teacher's interest in it and own knowledge level but i think there should be so much more of that practical maths taught in terms of you know what savings and pensions are or how, how people get a mortgage and how that works in terms of buying a property but we've been doing some work recently with schools um, and going into schools and speaking to them I've been actually quite surprised by the knowledge level and the competency level when we're talking about finance and even when we go into talking about investing for example which is not a topic that you know 13 14 year olds would necessarily have come across before there's quite a lot of enthusiasm to learn about that stuff so I think there is a definite enthusiasm from the children's side but I think it's more about not having quite so much this patchy rollout of these lessons that people could learn. Now we've got one more special guest on this week's podcast. Investors are spoilt for choice when it comes to ways to invest in Vietnam. There's three investment trusts on London Stock Exchange in this area and you've got two tracker funds. But the key question is why should you invest in this country? To shed some light on these opportunities, Dan recently caught up with Dragon Capital founder Dominic Scriven, who's an expert in Vietnam. He's part of the team managing investment trust Vietnam Enterprise Investments Limited, which is also known as Vale. Let's hear what he had to say. So, Dominic, I mean, supply chain issues 
in the pandemic made a lot of companies think twice about relying on places like China for their goods. Um, I know there's been lots of talk about people wanting to diversify their manufacturing bases um, with Vietnam seen as a sort of a, sort of a likely beneficiary. I was just wondering if there's any sort of evidence that that sort of work has already sort of shifted to the country or whether um, that's a long term sort of trend to expect. Uh, well, it's a very good question. And um, all these words, nearshoring, friendshoring, reshoring, they're all getting quite confused about how one, one interprets them, aren't they? But um, in the case of Vietnam, and uh, not just Vietnam, but that's the place I, I feel I know, um, this is a trend that's been going for 20 years. So cast your mind back to 2003 and SARS when the global garment industry got an extremely rude shock because the production was overwhelmingly centered in China. And that is, in fact, where the, the expression China plus one was first coined. And then spin forward from there to... Um, I suppose when Obama came into power in the US and we had the beginnings of this attempt to articulate um, a trading regime that might limit China, it was called the CPTPP, which was an attempt to um, oh, really to limit China's influence, I think. And uh, at that stage, um, people then began to move or think of moving and begin to move some of their incremental facilities away from a, a great preponderance on China. Of course, CPTPP never actually happened, did it? But the, um, uh, because that was kiboshed by Trump, but you know, the, the die was, was cast. And then of course, uh, all along we've had this, uh, you know, incremental set of pressures cost push facilities, technology, environment, these sort of issues that have meant that people are always having to reinvest and look for extra efficiencies. And then, of course, the uh, the more recent um, aspects to which you're referring to, uh, the pandemic and also the geopolitics that's been uh, cropping up in the newspapers have continued to emphasize this. So the theme has been a, uh, you know, it's taken foreign investment in in Vietnam, if we use that as an example, from about $3 billion a year to now sort of 25 to $30 billion, $30 billion, in fact, maybe probably even over $30 billion a year, so a tenfold increase. And we've been um, always prepared to call a bit of a slowdown in that. But do you know what? The evidence uh, shows that the trends are continuing. And I I'm not so sure. We'll have to see whether the whether the trends are actually accelerating now. If you go by the headlines, they they probably are, but the the numbers on the ground in the last year has been a little bit slower everywhere, so it's a bit difficult to extrapolate the 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 trends. But very very clearly, um, what we see on the ground in Vietnam is continuing movement of of. Uh, of, of manufacturing behemoths. Um, not necessarily everybody exiting China, but they're, they're recasting their supply lines. And 
um, doing so to include other countries. I mean, one aspect that came out of the pandemic was transportation costs that made it very difficult to ship stuff around. So, you know, a, a lot of people, you know, serve Europe are, are maybe moving to Poland or, or possibly even Turkey, and obviously people in the US moving to, to, to Mexico. But also a lot of people are moving, you know, to to for for non-transportation reasons. Um and the 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 trend we've seen can be broken down into a sort of set of levels. So you know firstly you had the the sub subcontractors and the subcontractors and then you have the contractors. And now you've got the you know the big headline names that are beginning to to make make the moves themselves not just with manufacturing but with other aspects so you know you know apple for example has 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 or nike any of these big brands they they have their manufacturing capacity but they also have a whole load of other stuff they have their design their operations their sourcing their hr you know these are other aspects which are equally important parts of the chains. So some of these are moving as well. So yes, it's quite a live. It's 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 a live. Um, it's a live pool of activity, and we don't really see any slowdown. Um, we'll have to wait and see. You know the degree of acceleration. So apart from manufacturing, what are the other sort of main industries that you might find in Vietnam? Particularly, obviously, if you're looking for for stocks in which to invest. Yeah. Well, we we. Um, we approach things by identifying some some really big themes that are present in reasonably well-run, populous, developing countries. So um, we have industrialization, of course, that's one. We have um, internationalization, uh, as you know, trade trade agreements and parts of the economy are opened up. Uh, in the case of Vietnam, you know, exports are over a hundred percent of GDP, and as indeed are imports. So, you know, this is very, very much uh, the the fruit of internationalization. And um, because of those two, you get urbanization. So, people leaving the traditional, uh, more agricultural ways of living and moving to work inherently more productively. Uh, in in urban type environments, uh, and because of all of those three, you get income growth. And in a number of cases, Vietnam is one, uh, not the only one. That this is is sort of couched over with a with a demographic a demographic um, uh, lens as well, where the population is still increasing at a, a reasonable level. So these are the sort of four or five big themes that span multi decades. And what we try and do is find uh, not just the industries, but the companies that fit into these themes. So in, in and often in developing markets, um, you know, market the, the market capitalization doesn't reflect equally or it reflects in different ways these different aspects. So you play some some you can play directly, but some you you play indirectly. And in the case of Vietnam, we we play uh, we play very heavily um, on aspects of what I would call, you know, property 
um, urban development, industrial parks, residential housing, um, the growth of, you know, shopping malls, um, and other in urban infrastructure related things. So you've got education, um, you've got bridges and roads. And then of course, you've got the companies that make the materials, the cement and the steel and the construction companies that all fit into that. So that would be one very big area in our portfolios. Another very big area in our portfolios would be, would be financialization. So this is everything from, you know, people opening their first bank account to people building up, um, you know, savings to people, uh, beginning to, um, take loans and those loans might be for a mortgage, you know, for, for their first, first acquisition of a home or, or it might be consumer finance, um, or, or it might be, you know, experimentations with digitalization. And then of course you've got the retail, the household and the corporate sector, all of which have slightly different dynamics. So the whole financialization, um, centered initially over the banks, but then latterly over, over capital markets more generally into, um, financial products, um, people making investments, uh, and then of course people looking to build out, uh, long-term pension type, uh, products and life insurance. So these are, that's another very large area. Those would be the two biggest areas in our, in our portfolios. I mean, Dominic, you make it sound like, um, there's, there's clearly lots of opportunities there, um, in Vietnam, but what, for, there must be some negative as well to think about if you're if you're wanting to sort of invest in this country, is it stuff like um, you know, less satisfactory corporate governance or or is there corruption or something like that to think about? Yeah, um, of course it's not all a one way street. You're quite right. Um, I'd say the two the two biggest issues that we probably have to deal with are are around number one. I mean, they both really come from inexperience, uh, I think, and, and, and also sort of somewhat rapid development. So yeah, policy making, if you, if, if we, if we look at a macro level, um, and that's in terms of, uh, you know, economic policy making, financial policy making, uh, you know, new laws, um, uh, the, uh, ability of regulators to react to a rapidly growing private sector, you know, push or pull rather it is, you know, the, so we get some volatility in, in, um, policymaking, which means that policies can emerge very quickly, uh, and they can be, uh, not entirely fully fashioned when the policies hit the, hit the ground. So I would call it policy volatility. That's not to take away from the fact that, you know, over the long term, uh, you know, the Vietnamese government's done a pretty damn good job, but it, on a, on a year on year basis, or even on a quarter on quarter basis. And it, actually at the moment we we, you know, last year we suffered, um, from that relatively heavily, the market was down by 30%, over 30% because of some um, one might call it somewhat heavy handed policy making moves. So that would be one area that, that we need to be, to which we need to be highly attuned down. And the other area, 
is at the company level. Um, and you, you said you made the point yourself, it's governance. If I, if I look at most of the, uh, you know, the, the, the difficult issues we've had, the, the mistakes we've made, the losses we've incurred over the years, I'd say by far the biggest contributor is, is, is governance, inexperienced governance, um, unclear governance. Um, our inability to understand governance models, uh, disputes that arrive in governance. And so this isn't to say that, uh, you know, governance is an issue everywhere in the world, isn't it? It's not to say that governance doesn't exist. It's to say that it's, it's a journey and the journey has its own characteristics. And of course that's, I, you know, that's, that's what we spend an awful lot of time on the ground, um, being engaged in. That was Dominic Scriven from London Listed Investment Trust, Vietnam Enterprise Investments Limited. We've reached the end of the show. Thank you so much for listening. And don't forget to send us any pensions questions for Tom so he can answer them next week. The email address to get us on is podcast at ajbell.co.uk. See you then. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor.